First John chapter 5, and we'll be reading the first five verses. We looked at somewhat of an overview last week of this chapter as we conclude our study of First John. This is the final chapter, of course. And I told you, and we saw how that this chapter uses very familiar language as John's already used in the previous four chapters. This is somewhat of a summary of all the truth that John has already spoken. We're going to even see that more so emphasized tonight as we begin to delve into the first five verses of this, uh, this last chapter. So look at chapter 5, verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Within this epistle, uh, John provides, as we have seen over the past many months now, clear evidence as to the authenticity of one's professed fellowship with God. As we have discovered consistently throughout our study of John's epistle, he leaves no room at all for doubt concerning this all-important matter. We have outlined these tests that John provides throughout the epistle, specifically eight tests that John has given in these first, really chapters 2, 3, and 4 for the most part. Mostly, John provides a a tremendous introduction in chapter 1, then begins to outline these tests in chapters 2, 3, and 4. And within these uh, three chapters specifically, John gives four tests that serve as a means by which we are to examine our lives in light of the evidence of these tests that John provides. Again, these tests aren't provided so that we can attempt to measure up to anything. The tests are provided that we might examine ourselves in light of God's Word in John's definitive, absolute, black and white language that we would have an understanding concerning uh, this truth of God's Word and the evidence that is provided as to whether or not the professed relationship we have or the relationship we profess to have, the relationship we, we claim to have, the fellowship that we claim to have or profess to have, this, these tests prove its authenticity, whether or not it's true. And John just outlines it very clearly. So we began, and I'm just going to run through these briefly, giving you the chapter and the verses, and then read one or two verses or so from each of these as we reviewed last week. Let me review again briefly. First is the obedience test in chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. In verse 3, just reading one verse from that passage, John said, And hereby we do know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. And so this obedience test, of course, is not talking about doing the law per se, but rather it is that we protect the word uh, that is used here, translated keep, is that of protect or to guard. And so, it, again, the, the, you could see an implication being here that John is stating that if we, if we value God's truth, if we value God's law and God's... And by the way, again, God's law, it, let me clarify this in case you're not aware, God's law is, is really not a list of do's and don'ts. God's law is the declaration of his own righteousness. He is declaring, I am holy, I am righteous, I, I require and demand this and will accept nothing less. And so that's why man obviously is doomed from the beginning because he cannot measure up at all to God's requirement. And so God's law, when it says keep the commandments, again, it's that we are cherishing that which God loves and cherishes. Then that moves, and these are progressive in their nature, by the way, and we see that in the next test as well, which number two is the love test. In chapter 2, verses 7 through 14, I'll just read verses 9 through 11 here. He that saith he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. 
But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. So here John is, of course, explaining that those who claim that they, they love God, yet if there's not a love for the brethren, those whom God has redeemed that is present, then of course they do not know God at all. And he's saying this is evidence of knowing God. Then third, the life test. Chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. We'll read just verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This is a test of life because what you... Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so if we value the things of the world, and that's where our heart is, that's because that is what we truly love. And here we're told, love not the world. Now, the love not the world is not talking about uh, simply uh, uh, that we are not to love those of our family in the world, of course, or anything of that nature. Rather, John is saying we are not to love the world. We are not to love the culture. We are not to love the wickedness. We are not to love the things that are wicked within the world. And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, because the love of God supersedes all of that. And so our love will be turned toward him, towards him if, our, if we truly love him. Then we have the truth test. Chapter 2, verses 18 through 24. Verse 21, just one verse. I have not written unto you because ye know not the truth, but because ye know it, and that no lie is of the truth. So here, of course, John is saying he's written unto them because they do know the truth, and they're aware of the truth, and they've embraced the truth, and they are living in the truth. The righteousness test. Chapter 2, 25 through 29. Verse 29, if ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. Now again, it doesn't say if we do righteousness, we can be born of him or we earn something. He's saying that those who are born of God do live in righteousness. They practice righteousness. Not saying that they never sin. John covered that in chapter 1 and chapter 3. But he's saying rather that it's not we never sin, but our desires are righteous. We hunger after righteousness. This inward man now thirst after righteousness, and therefore righteousness is a product of our lives now. Then you have number six, uh, the sanctification test, chapters three, or chapter three, one through ten, and verses four and five will read, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth, transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law, and ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. So here he says, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. And then we know the scripture goes on to say as well in chapter three that uh, that he which is born of God sin does not sin, not, or commit, does not commit sin. And the word there that's being used in the statement made committeth or commit is that of practice. And then it talks about committing sin, <clears throat> which is referring to lawlessness. And so those who practice lawlessness, those who practice unrighteousness, are not of God, no matter what they claim, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, if their lives are not being lived in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we're not talking about a works performance salvation. We're talking about the evidence of salvation in one's life. This is the evidence. This is the proof. And so we have sanctification present. Then seven is the discernment test. Chapter four, verses one through six. I'll read verse one and verse six. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Verse 6, we are of God, he that knoweth God heareth us, he that is not of God heareth not us, hereby we know the spirit, hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now when John says here that he that knoweth God heareth us, he's saying he who is in relationship with God understands what we are saying. That's what John's talking about here. He hears, he understands. It's not talking about just that he's able to audibly uh, audibly receive sound, but rather he's saying that he has a heart to understand truth, a heart that perceives truth, and this is how we know that which is error and that which is truth, because listen, if a man does not have the Spirit of God within him, he does not have spiritual discernment. In Corinthians, Paul stated that... Um, 
The things of God are to them that are, are, are lost, of course, these things are foolish because the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. The, the unregenerate man, the man who's just in his flesh without Christ, without a spiritual life, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit. They are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. And so the natural man, the physical man, the man without a spiritual life, without the presence of Christ, does not understand and discern truth. He doesn't understand the truth. He may consciously be able to understand intelligently, academically, things that are being stated, but he is spiritually dead and there is no spiritual life. Therefore, there is no spiritual understanding. And that's what John is referencing here. Then last, the eighth, is the fear test or perfect love. In chapter 4, verses 15 through 18, I'll read just 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now, the fear here that he's referring to, of course, is that a fear of God as judge, a fear of God as one in, before we went in, one before in whom before we will stand. And he's saying here that 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 God, we fear Him in that sense as though there is a, we are scared of Him. And I told you, and I'll say to you again, perfect love, as John says, casteth out fear. Perfect love is revealed where, in whom, and, and where? In Christ through Calvary, right? And so we know that Christ is God's uh, personification of love. He is the perfect love. And this love is just perfected in us. It removes all fear. It eradicates fear. So here's what I'm saying to you. I do not fear standing before God in judgment. I absolutely do not. Not because of something I've done or because I've done a pretty good job. Absolutely not. I do not fear standing before God because Christ has taken my place. I am in Him and He is in me. I stand, he stands in my stead. And so I am confident in Him. Therefore, why would I fear if I'm confident in Him? Now, if I'm not confident in Him, I'd have great reason to fear to stand before God. But because I am in Christ and He is in me, all fear is eradicated. I reverence God. God is my friend. He is my Father. He has provided my Savior. And He's not, he's not some casual acquaintance. He is to be reverenced as the Creator, as the Lord of all, as the Father who has sent His Son to redeem us, I reverence Him tremendously and have tremendous reverence and fear and awe of who He is, but I am not scared of Him because Christ has stood in my stead. And as I've said to you so many times, as Paul wrote, for He hath made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. For the Father literally judged Jesus as though He were a sinner when He was not, so that he might then justify and receive me as a son, though I were a sinner. And so the entirety of God's wrath, which would have been reserved for me, has been absolutely, totally exhausted upon Christ. God is never angry with me. God is never wrathful towards me. God is satisfied in his son, and my life is in him, and he is in me. Now, that does not mean that God will not correct and chasten me along the way, but that is all for the purpose of sanctification taking place and unto God's glory as I'm being conformed to the image of His Son. But here's what I'm saying to you, and this is a great truth you must understand. There is nothing I will ever do that will cause God to ever love me any less than He already loves me in Jesus Christ. And therefore, there is also nothing I can ever do that will ever cause God to love me any more than He loves me in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. So I'm loved in Christ. And I'm thankful that that's true because I fell and you fell. So... If God's love was dependent on our performance, if God's love was dependent upon our actions, if God's love was dependent upon our, our faithfulness, then we would not be very loved of God. But we are loved because He loves us in His Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I have been made accepted in Him. And so we understand this truth. There is no fear. This fear is eradicated. 
The evidence, as I've mentioned many times, of the authenticity of one's fellowship with God is not provided with any one proof that John lists within these eight tests. But it is the evidence in the proof, is in the proof which exists by the collective evidence of each test and every test. In other words, all eight of these tests provided by John progressively reveal the authenticity of one's fellowship with God or they all together serve as a proof of one's lack of fellowship with God. So it's not we cling to one test. It's not saying, well, I live pretty righteously today. No, that's not the test. That's not the evidence that's here. The evidence is that we have a love for God. Therefore, there is a love for truth. Therefore, there is a love for others who are in the truth. And therefore, there is a love and desire after righteousness. Therefore, we are being sanctified continually by the presence of God's Spirit dwelling within us. Therefore, I do not fear judgment because I am confident of he who has done this work and begun this work will perform and accomplish and complete this work as he has promised to do. Are you seeing the progression here? So I'm not, it's not we pull one test out of eight out and go, oh, well, this is how I know I'm born again. No, it's all eight that go show us the evidence of the new birth. It's all eight that show us the evidence of one who knows Christ, who is in fellowship with God. So within this final chapter, John provides somewhat, as I've mentioned, of a summarization of these eight tests, which he had previously detailed throughout the epistle. When one reads with understanding 1 John chapter 5, understanding the previous four chapters, that is, there should be absolutely no doubt as to the authenticity of professed faith. Look at, let's look at verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, let's stop for a minute because if you take just that one statement alone and you read it on the surface, that would appear as though John is saying, okay, if you, if you say Jesus is God, that Jesus is Lord, then that means, oh, guess what? You're in fellowship with God. But that's not at all what John is teaching here. Remember, it's all eight tests. This is one of the tests that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember that we understand, acknowledge that he is the righteous one sent by God. And so what we understand here, when John says, whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, he is the Messiah. That is, that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is who God has declared him to be. And everyone that loveth him, that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. The public commentary points out that this chapter begins with what is referred to as a sorites. And in Webster's dictionary, he defines a sorites as an argument consisting of propositions so arranged that the predicate of any one forms the subject of the next, and the conclusion unites the subject of the first proposition with the predicate of the last. And everyone understands, right? Spence Jones continued to explain. He'll, he'll clarify it for us. Here's what he says. As in first, verse 1, let's read it again. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat him, or begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. Here's what Spence Jones explained. To believe in the incarnation involves birth from God. To be born of God involves loving God. To love God involves loving His children. Therefore, to believe in the incarnation involves loving God's children. That kind of dumbs it down for us. So what he's saying is that, that to believe in the incarnation, whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. What he's saying is that Jesus is the Messiah, that He is the incarnate. He is God in the flesh. To believe that, not to just say the words, I believe Jesus is God. No, to believe, to totally entrust one's spiritual well-being to this truth. To have absolute confidence, relying and resting totally, solely, dependent upon the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as God's provision for man, the Savior of the world, of, of all peoples, of all tribes, of all tongues. For one to truly rest in that truth, it involves 
that he is first born of God, because otherwise no man will ever come to that conclusion. And then, to be born of God involves loving God, because we love him, why? Because he first loved us, as John declares. So, to, to be born again, to believe that Jesus is, the, is God in the flesh, is to have been born again by God's Spirit within, and to believe, or to be born again by God's Spirit, is, of course, then, to love God. But to love God also involves loving the people of God because how can we love, as John's already declared, how can we love God whom we've not seen and, or how can we uh, love God whom we've not seen and yet not love the brothers and sisters whom we do see? He says, how could such a thing be? Therefore, as he says, to believe in the incarnation involves loving God's children. So he makes the connection here and he's saying, if one is truly born again, If one truly believes that Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the anointed one, he is God in the flesh, then he will love the people of God. That's what he's concluding here. This verse points us back to many of the previous verses within this epistle. Let's look at the first part of verse 1 again. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. In chapter 2, verse 22, we read, Who is a liar but he that denieth Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Chapter 4, verse 2, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. 1 John 4, 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. So again, we see these evidences pouring out out throughout John's epistle. As I pointed out during our study of these verses, the word confess means to acknowledge, but to acknowledge in this context means more than simply providing a verbal admission, but it is to submit to the reality of this truth which is acknowledged. In other words, for us to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God is not simply for us to make some outward verbal confession that Jesus is the Son of God, but rather it is for us to recognize, acknowledge, realize, and submit to the truth which we are acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is Lord, in other words. And again, just to clarify this and to make it very clear that people misread this all the time, remember in Matthew's Gospel where Jesus said, many shall say unto me in that day. Not that many, he said, many shall say, have we, or Lord, Lord, we have done many wonderful works in thy name. Remember that? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. He said, I don't know you, like in a relationship, he's talking, of course he knows who they are, he's omniscient. Of course he knows all about them, he gave them life, he took their life, he knows all of these things, but yet... He is not in a relationship with them. He says, depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. No matter what you claim, you can say, Lord, Lord, all you want, but I'm not your Lord in the sense of your submission to me. I am Lord over all, but you've not acknowledged that. Though you are professing it, notice you've not acknowledged it. You're not submitted to this truth. And that's what is being spoken of here in the word confession. This truth is indicated in language when he says, is born of God. Notice. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. As previously indicated, John explains that one who truly is born of God will live in his righteousness. 1 John 2, 29, going back to the same epistle. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. So again, he is righteous and we know that, so all those that are born of him are also righteous. Why? Because it's not our life, it's his life in us and he is righteous. Therefore, righteousness is going to proceed from us because the very source of our existence and life is righteousness. Last night in our our theology class, we dealt with this very truth concerning justification and how that in in Romans 6, I believe it is, where Paul Paul speaks to this, and he states that 
that our lives, of course, being yielded, we had yielded our lives, our members of this body, unto sin, unto, of course, more wickedness. But then he says, in like manner, now we are to yield ourselves unto right, in righteousness unto holiness. And what he's saying is that if righteousness, is a, if sin was the source of our existence, which it was prior to knowing Christ, then that means that everything that came from, forth from us was tainted and perverted by the sin which, from which everything came out of. But yet, if we are righteous now in Christ, then why would the same not be true concerning the righteousness of Jesus within us now pouring out and influencing and affecting us completely, totally, as an entire being? Because now the source of our existence, the source of our life, is not the sinful nature, though that's still present. The source of our life is the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. And so therefore, righteousness is going to flow from us. Not because, again, let me clarify, because we get really hung up here. No man is commanded to do righteousness in effort to become righteous. That is not what's happening here. We do righteously because we have been declared and made righteous in Christ, and righteousness now dwells in us. So that's what's coming forth from us. So righteousness that is done out of our lives is not something we produce. It's the results of Christ, the righteous one, dwelling within us. And now his life is being lived through ours. Then he goes on to say, verse 1, And everyone that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. John is reminding us that it is impossible for one to genuinely love God and yet not love those who God loves or those who have been born of him. John had addressed this truth in chapter 3 of this epistle, 1 John 3.14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now, again, if you were to look at this one statement, oh, well, man, I go to church all the time and I love all those people at the church house. That's not what John's talking about here. And this is one evidence, remember? You may love everybody at church, so to speak, as you, per, as you would view or perceive love, but let me remind you of something. You can, you can have affection towards a lot of people and yet not love God, or you can have affection towards a lot of people and not love truth or righteousness or not live in the truth of righteousness. And so it's not saying, oh, just because I love somebody at church, that means I'm a believer. Not at all. This is one of many of the evidences that are all present within the life of the believer. And that's what's important for you to understand. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So John explains that we have confidence we love God's children, those who are born of him, when we love God. And we have confidence we love God when we cherish that which God loves and cherishes, which results in us living in and out righteousness. Again, we find a very similar instance with that of verse 1. Notice what he says, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. So in other words, those who love the children of God cherish the commandments of God. Keep the commandments of God. Live in righteousness and truth. Also, those who love God love the children, or, or love the children of God, because God has loved us and He has loved them, and that love has been expressed in Christ. Therefore, that love flows between us as people of God. But then also, those who love God also keep His commandments. So you see, it's all tied together. You cannot separate these. So John explains that we have confidence again that we love God's children, others that are born again, when we love God and this confidence that we cherish that which God loves. Once again, this points us back to the truth which John has previously declared within this epistle, 1 John 2, 5. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Now, wait a minute. Didn't John already say that 
perfect love casteth out fear, and we know that this love is perfected in us basically because it, the fear of, of judgment is eradicated. But here he's saying that those who keep his word, this is the love of God being perfected. Hereby we know that we are in him because we keep his word. So does that mean that we're supposed to try really hard to do what the scripture says and therefore that gives us confidence that we are of God? No, it means that the desire now that, that, we are, that consumes us is one that hungers and thirsts after righteousness rather than worldliness. And when I say worldliness, I'm talking about ungodliness and wickedness rather than sin. Then he goes on to say verse 3. For this is the love of God. Now he continues this argument, if you will, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Now, within this verse, John makes two declarations, really. First, those who love God keep, protect, guard, and cherish his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. John previously declared, declared this truth in chapter 2 as well, chapter 2, verse 3. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. And the second declaration, God's commandments are not a burden to those who love him. Jesus explained this truth to those he ministered to, to during in his time, in his day. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now let, let's stop for a minute before I go any further. I want to go back to verse 3. Let's read it again together. Keep all this together. Flow with this, the truth and understanding of the thought John is providing us here with all of what Scripture teaches. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not grievous. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come unto me. All ye that are laboring are heavy laden, I will give you rest. He says, you'll find rest under your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus spoke of rest. But then the question which must be asked is this. From what did the people need rest? If he says, you're, you're, you that labor, you're heavy laden, you're burdened down. What are they burdened down from? What is the specific context of which Jesus is speaking here? Now, obviously, we could all say, oh, well, it's sin that burns us. But that's not, that's not actually all that he's saying. He's not saying, all you that do wickedly come and I'll give you rest. So that's true. He's saying, all you that labor and are under tremendous burden. So then the question is, what is this burden that they are under? They're laboring. What is the burden? Ultimately, this is a burden of sin. No question about that. But more specifically, what is Jesus referring to? A few chapters later as well in Matthew's gospel, we discover what rest the people needed. In Matthew 23, verses 1 through 4, listen to what Jesus says. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For, listen to verse 4, For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So when Jesus says, come unto me, all you that are labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is, or my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What is he comparing that to? Obviously, the weight that the people were under by the religious leaders to do this and to do that. And it was overwhelming and overburdening. And by the way, the same mentality exists today within religion. Do, do, do. I'm telling you, it's already been done. Christ is the fulfilled righteousness of God. But if we know Him, that means righteousness now just flows out of us because He dwells in us. It's not that we are attempting to do anything. 
we are now living the very life that Christ is living his life in us and our lives are not ours, but they are his and therefore righteousness is, is flowing and proceeding from us because he who is righteous, the very righteousness of God dwells within us. But the religious leaders are saying, do this, do that, do that. And today I'm telling you that churches are full of this where men are standing up and trying to get people to do it so they can become something more, so they can become something better. I'm telling you, we are nothing more than worms. That's what we are. We are marred images of God at best. And that being said, we are in desperate need to be conformed, or might I say reformed, into the image which Christ of Christ by which God has created us originally, that we might be in fellowship with Him, that we might be in a relationship with Him, but all that was, was forfeited in the Garden of Eden. So now here we are. And while many will say, oh, well, if you just do this, try a little more, try a little better, or even as a believer saying to believers, oh, you really want to make God happy, then you need to do this. Let me tell you the only thing God is pleased in, His Son, period. That's it. And unless we're resting in His Son, there's nothing you're going to do to please God. It's true. This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Who was that about? Oh, Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Then why are we trying to match that? But here's the beauty of it. We don't have to. God has made provision for us in Christ. And again, righteousness will come forth from us. This isn't, I'm not saying, oh, well, if you're saved, then you just, you know, obviously you know me and you know the truth of God's word. And you know I declare God's truth from his word. And the word of God in no way is implying or intimating that this means that we just live life how we want because, oh, I'm going to heaven, that's all that matters. No, if that's the mentality you have, you really need to examine your profession according to 1 John. You'll find that it falls way short and you do not know God. What this is saying is that those who know God love Him, love His people, love His truth, love righteousness, and don't fear Him as a judge, but they reverence Him as a Father. The commands of Jesus are not burdensome, but for the believer, for those who are born again, the commands of Christ, the commands of God, are a source of joy for those who love Him and have been born again. For it is the Spirit of God who dwells within us, and His Spirit is the source of the desire within the believer's life. Therefore, we desire righteousness because Jesus Christ is God's righteousness, and He dwells in us. Look at verses 5 and 6. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. The world, the worldly system, society, culture, is counter-gospel. The world is antichrist. As John explains within this epistle again, 1 John 2, 16 and verse 18. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Verse 18. Little children, it is the last time, and as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. Now this was written 2,000 years ago. Okay, This isn't talking about yesterday. This is 2,000 years ago when John wrote this. And John says, this is the last time, and Antichrists are in the world right now. The worldly system is anti-Christ. Unbelievers are anti-Christ. They're, they're counter-gospel. Yet in verses 5 and 6, John here explains that those who are born of God are victorious by faith, by confession and belief in Jesus Christ, for it is Christ who is our victory. 
Once again, we discover that John is repeating the previous truths of this epistle to emphasize the manner in which we understand that we are genuinely in a relationship with God. And it's not one of these, it's all of these. We believe in Jesus by faith, resting completely in His sufficiency, which produces love for God, a love for His truth, a love for those whom He loves. And when, he, when such a love is present, the commandments of God are not a burden, but a source of joy. We love Him, we love His truth, we love what He loves. Therefore, it's not burdensome to submit to Christ It's not burdensome to live in the truth of God's Word. It is joyful to do so as a believer in Jesus Christ. And it's not joyful because we look back and go, oh, we did pretty good today. No, it's joyful because we love Him because He loves us and out of that love grows a love or or is present a love for truth and a love for righteousness. And because this is true, His commandments are not grievous. Listen, religion puts a weight on people they cannot bear. But Christ sets us free and gives a freedom that is beyond any compare. Nothing can compare to the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ. So John begins by stating that He is emphasizing the truth from all the previous chapters concerning these evident, the evidences of these tests that he provides and saying this is how you understand. And we're going to get to that in chapter 5. Again, we haven't gotten there yet, but we will, where John says, I touched on it in our overview of this chapter, whenever John says, I've, these things I've written to you that ye might, that may know that ye have eternal life. When he says no, he's not just saying that you might have confidence. He's not using the word no in the same way we often use it. He is saying that you may understand. This is how we understand whether or not we are in fellowship with God. This is how we understand whether or not we are in relationship with God. And again, I say to you what a beautiful truth that God did not give us just this one thing, but it's all of this evidence that proves this, that we are in relationship and fellowship with Him. Again, I'm telling you, there are too many people that are resting and trusting in some prayer they prayed, some baptism, some sign card, or whatever else it may be, and they're saying, oh, I remember, I remember, you you can talk to someone, and they are living lives full of wickedness, full of hell, completely unrighteous, no evidence of faith, no evidence of of a hunger for truth, and yet claim, oh, I know I'm saved. How do you you know you're born again? Oh, I know because I, I, I asked Jesus in my heart. Well, where does Scripture tell you that? The point is, that is not what salvation is, and that is not one of the evidences that are present in John's epistle. He's saying, I've written these things so you might understand that you are in a relationship and fellowship with the God of the universe, with your Creator, through His Son, Jesus Christ. And what assurance there is. And you want assurance? There's the assurance. Look at what the Scripture says. And we rest in in the truth of Christ and His finished work. And the evidence of that faith to believe is present in every single believer, without exception.